Hello, it's Bob Schaefer, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. My goodness, Royals fans, do we have a treat for you today. I am so glad you're along. It's Davo on Clubhouse Conversation, the place where we catch up with all your favorite current and former Royals players, coaches, and managers. And the latter two describe today's guest, former Royals coach and manager. Bob Schaefer joins us on Clubhouse Conversation. I am very excited for this one. Schaefer has spent 36 years in professional baseball as we head into 2016. He currently works for the Washington Nationals as a special assistant to the general manager. Uh, But we'll focus on his times with the Royals primarily throughout this interview. Schaefer originally hired by the Royals in 1987 to manage at Memphis there in AA. Meets John Wathan in spring training, and Duke promises him a a job on a a major league coaching staff if and when he becomes Kansas City Royals manager. Duke does that in 88, so Schaefer is here from 88 to 91 at the major league level with the Royals, and then he comes back as well and works for Tony Muser and Tony Pena from 2001 to 2005, a guy who managed the Royals for 18 total games between 1991 and 2005, a guy that... You know, played college baseball at UConn, played in the College World Series. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about his times as a minor league infielder with the Cardinals. We'll talk about him being Joe Torre's right-hand man, so to speak, with the Dodgers from 2008 to 2010. All that in bundles more from Bob Schaefer, who joins us from his home in Florida as he gets set to head to spring training here pretty soon. Bob Schaefer on Clubhouse Conversation. First of all, thanks so much, Bob, for your time. And second of all, how's everything going with you? Uh, good. Everything's good. Winding down my vacation to start spring training. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what, since 2011, you've been a, a special assistant to the GM there for the Nationals. Uh, so you're still doing that, and, and how much fun is that? Well, it's good. I mean, I, uh, you know, he's a great baseball guy, and uh, we have a really good organization. Uh, a little disappointing last year, but everybody in baseball, baseball knows how tough it is to win, and things didn't go our way last year with injuries and a few players not having great years. But, uh, well, we, we're back at it again. we got a solid team, and uh, hopefully we can compete and get in the playoffs. Yeah, you made some good offseason moves. I mean, how much fun is it also watching a guy like Bryce Harper? You know, I'm sure you've known Bryce for a long time. Seeing him come up and develop, I mean, it's got to be just special every day, right? Yeah, he's a special player, no doubt about it. And the thing about Bryce, he has a great work ethic. Uh, he's determined to be the best baseball player, uh, baseball player in the game. And, uh, you know, he's really worked hard to get where he's at. And he has a lot of natural talent, of course. But uh, the work, work ethic is what separates some of these guys from being – good to being very good to being superstars now you've also obviously spent a lot of time in the royals organization so i'm sure you enjoyed from afar watching the last couple of world series i mean were you pretty happy for the royals the last couple seasons uh, very happy you know that was i spent four years or 80 to 91 i went back in 2002 to 2005 and uh, kansas city is a special place in our family's you know heart really i mean we love kansas city great people great ballpark uh, great fans of course and uh my first tenure there, 80 to 91, we had really good teams. Uh, when I went back in 2002, uh, we weren't too good for three years, but 2003 we were really good. Yeah. And, but it's just a special place, and it's very, you know, satisfying watching those guys play. It's a different regime than it was when I was there. But Dayton Moore and his, his staff have done a tremendous job. And uh, you know, the thing about it being an old-time baseball guy, it was real baseball. You know, they didn't strike out a lot. They played great defense. Outstanding pitching, and uh, they just played the game the right way, and they all contributed. And it was it was really fun to watch. Uh, like it's almost like old school baseball, executed very well, and they all took turns to being a hero. And uh, it was really exciting to watch them. I bet you would have killed to have that bullpen back when you were here, right? Um, yes, because <laughs> that's when we weren't too good. Our, our pitching wasn't very good at all when I went back in 2002 to 2005, but. Uh, it's a good feeling when you go to the bullpen of sixth inning and know there's a pretty good chance the game's over. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, we'll we'll come back and talk more about your Royals days here uh, in a little bit, but let's start by going way back. Are you ready? 
go ahead if I can remember. I got a good memory. Sometimes it's short. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Norwalk, Connecticut is where you graduated high school, 1962. So was baseball always your favorite and best sport growing up? And who do you kind of owe you know your early development to during your young years? Oh yes, baseball. I mean, I played all three sports: uh, well, soccer first, and football, and uh, basketball, and baseball, and. Yeah, in those days, you played all the sports, and uh, I think the other two sports made me better, made me a better baseball player because I developed some skills in those sports that uh, helped me you know, to play baseball. I mean, now, unfortunately, in some ways, a lot of kids specialize in a sport, and they just play one sport year-round, and uh, I don't think it's the best scenario, but uh, that's the way it is now. And uh, But I just think that, uh, you know, I was always around good teammates. Uh, I was kind of youngest guy in the team, which kind of made me better. I had to get better to play. And um, but I moved from Westport to Norwalk my junior year, and we had some good athletic teams in Norwalk, and uh, I think that's what really got me to the point where I felt that I could play. And I wanted to go to UConn, uh, and it wasn't really recruited. I was kind of a walk-on, and I walked on and made the team, and uh, had a really good career at UConn. So I think the experience I got in Norwalk, after a little bit of experience in Westport, uh, you know, I had good coaches, uh, good teammates. And I just was in a good situation, and I guess you say I took, took advantage of it. Yeah, you mentioned UConn. So 1965, you guys made the College World Series, and you were the NCAA home run champion. So I can't seem to find. How many home runs was it that year, and how special was it playing in Omaha? Well, I was a champion, but they went number per game. I hit nine in 18 games. Oh, okay. Seven, I guess seven in 18 games. So they want a percentage. <laughs> I played in the College World Series. Actually, I played in minor leagues after that. There was one guy that hit like 25, but he played like 100 games or something like that. So <laughs> I edged him out. It was number per game. So uh, I don't think I was really a power hitter, but I had some strength. And uh, and all of them were hit over over a fence also. It wasn't when I had to leg them out. So uh, that was pretty special. So, uh, But we had good teams here. Uh, again, we we're based on pitching and defense. We didn't have a lot of offense. We went to the College World Series. I think our team batting average is like 220 or something. But... Uh, we played good defense, and uh, we pitched well, but we were kind of overmatched out there in Omaha with some of these teams that played a whole bunch of games. And, uh, you know, Arizona State was out there with Sal Bando and Rick Monday and those type, type of guys, and we were just a bunch of hicks, I guess, from Connecticut that uh, <laughs> played hard together and seemed like when we needed a hit, we got a hit, and uh, we won a lot of games. And uh, But out there, we I think we won one game and lost two. But it was a great experience playing in Omaha and, and being in the, you know, the uh, the big light, so to speak, and, uh, and I think they just recently got a brand new ballpark there. But for a long time, they played in the same ballpark. Yeah, I miss Rosenblatt Stadium. What a special place that was, right? Right. Yeah. Well, so you get a distinguished alumni award in 2005 from UConn. That's got to mean a lot, right? Yeah, that was very good. Um, you know, the baseball program at UConn had a lot of really good history. A lot of good players came out of there. And recently, uh, you know, Jimmy Penders took over, and I played with Jimmy Penders. Uh, father, he was one of my teammates at UConn, as well as his uncle Tommy Penders. So Jimmy took over, and uh, he really did a good job recruiting. And uh, there's several major league players that went to UConn. And even the days where I was there, uh, we went to the College World Series. I think two years after that, they went again. And it always was a great baseball tradition. And uh, you know, it's a great school. And again, we had a lot of fun together. And you're also in the Cape Cod League Hall of Fame, so a league that I'm you know, very intrigued about. Which team did you play for, and what was that experience like? Well, I played in Sagamore, but I don't think I got there because of my playing days. I got there because I managed up there. Oh, really? And, uh, okay. And we won the championship two years in a row. I think we still have the record for number of wins per year in a season. Uh, and I managed there four years, and two years in Hyannis, uh, we won a championship. And we won a championship when I played there also in 1965 in Sagamore which is no longer the league, but uh, the Cape Cod League is a tremendous league. It's, you know, it's a great experience for the summertime, and uh, many major league players you know, had their careers jump-started in the Cape Cod League. Yeah, did you ever watch the movie Summer Catch that's based on that? No, I, I didn't see it, but there was a book written um, on, a, on the beach, something about baseball on the beach or something like that, and I read that. And uh, But there's it's a lot of, you know, Cape Cod League is, uh, you know, has a great... Uh, following in you know great history yeah well you get signed by the cardinals then 1966 you'd spend three years as a shortstop in that organization before we talk about that you know you know kind of talk about when you found out st louis was scouting you is there a moment where you remember that and were you kind of surprised they were the ones that offered you and signed you yeah i talked to a whole bunch of scouts <clears throat> at first my junior year in 65 i was drafted by the orioles 
and I used to talk to that scout a lot. And uh, and I, I didn't sign that year. I just felt I had to go back to school. And it was during the Vietnam War where, you know, I would have gotten drafted, and I felt I wanted to get my degree, and, you know, I was teaching school uh, part-time also when I was getting my graduate uh, degree. But so I... Uh, I turned on the offer with the Orioles, and, uh, and then I got drafted next year by the Cardinals. And uh, I had never talked to a Cardinal scout, but they drafted me, and I signed, and I went to the rookie league, and uh, actually St. Pete, then Sarasota for like three days. We started the season, then I went up to uh, Rock Hill, which is Class A, and uh, so that's when I started my career in '66, and lasted three years. And after three years, uh, you know, those days you know make a lot of money in the minor leagues, and even the major leagues didn't make a lot of money. I think 9000 was the minimum salary in the major leagues. And I had an offer to teach school and coach and everything, and we had a baby, and I just felt it was time for me to uh, you know, start another profession. And I was always determined to make it to the big leagues as a coach because I didn't really think I had the ability to make as a player. So I started my coaching career in high school in uh, 1968, I think it was. Yeah, it was 68. And after 12 years there, I got a chance to go into professional baseball, and uh, that's when I signed with the Yankees. Yeah, so were you also, or is this right that you were also a minor league coach in 73 with the, with the Phillies? Is that correct, or is that not? Yeah, it is. We call this information. You're pretty good. You take a lot of stuff up there. <laughs> yeah, I've been digging. <laughs> I should work for the CIA, right? Yeah, right. Now, what I did, I was teaching school, then, and uh, it was after one year that I coached in the Cape League, and I knew a Philly scout pretty well, and they were looking for a coach in the rookie league. So uh, I went there for the summer in 1973 in Pulaski, Virginia, that was my first experience in pro ball, and then I thought I was going to go back the next year, but something about the energy crisis, they cut a lot of people out of the system, and uh, Dallas Green was in charge, and he called me one day, and he said, Shafe, you know, you really did a good job, but uh, we just don't have the budget to do it anymore because of all the situation with the financial situation and everything. So, so again, I went back up back to the Cape Cod League, and that's when uh, Jack Butterfield uh, was in charge of the Yankees, and he hired me. Okay, so okay, so 1980 then you get hired by the Yankees. One other question before we get to that. So I read somewhere that I don't know what year this was, but you once drove a taxi and dug up graves. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah. I uh, <laughs> actually when I was going to college. I drove a taxi and uh, you know in the summertime and Christmas time and vacations, everything else. And then when I was working, when I was playing in Cape Cod League, uh, we had a job uh, actually mowing the lawns at uh, Otis Air Force Base, but. Halfway through the summer, all the lawn, lawns burned out, so there was no no more lawn mowing to be done. So they they told us to take a hike, and uh, I hooked up with this uh, landscaper, my buddy and I. And uh, one of our jobs was we had to dig up this grave, and you know we're laughing and having a good time and digging and you know just you know just like I said, having a good time. And all of a sudden we hit the grave, and it was like holy. So we all we, we split. We just it was a little creepy. So we uh, once we hit that grave, or I mean the casket. We uh, threw the shovels down and said, see you later, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> so that was one of our experiences. Yeah, I guess you had to have off-season jobs. Didn't pay real well in those days, right? No, but, you know, able to buy a few Cokes and a few hamburgers and stuff like that. Because, of course, in Cape Cod League, you didn't get paid to play. So uh, you had to make your own money elsewhere. And, and part of the deal in the Cape League is that every player had to have a job. And, uh, and we, we had jobs. Yeah. Well, 80 and 81, like you said. So it's Greensboro Hornets there in the Sally League uh, for the Yankees. You guys were league champs both years. You were named manager of the year as well. And I want to ask you about a few guys in particular, uh, you know, during your times in Greensboro. But overall, your, your favorite memories of managing there first? Well, we had, we had great teams. I mean, we had some older guys, but we had a lot of young guys. We had Don Manley. He was 18 years old. And Matt Winters and uh, Greg Gagne and Otis Nixon and... Uh, yeah, we just played very well. I mean, I had an advantage in some ways because I, I learned how to coach, learned how to teach from being in high school. And I was a student of the game. Even when I played, I mean, George Kissel, I used to pick his brain all the time. And I think George Kissel might have been one of the best teachers ever in the history of baseball and probably got to be in the Hall of Fame for a lot of people that played for George, uh, became successful in the coaching ranks as well as the playing ranks. But uh, anyway, so I learned quite a bit. And uh you know, we had a good fundamental team. The Yankees were a great organization. And, uh, you know, we just, you know, one year we were 53 games over 500. And you almost could see that we were head and shoulders by the other teams. But to keep motivated, we kept saying, well, okay, we've got to get five over 500. Now we got to get 10 over 500. And we ended up 53 over 500. But uh, <laughs> it was, you know, like I said, the guys played well. They uh, executed well. And uh, it was just that, uh, you know, we just had good teams and played well. And, uh 
like any any team, you know, it's not how good you are, it's how good you play. Well, we were good, but we played well also. So it was very gratifying those first two years. Now, you mentioned George. Is that the guy that uh, you and uh, Joe Torrey knew mutually later on? Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, Joe came through the Cardinals organization also, and uh, he told me later when I interviewed for the job, and I mentioned George Kissel, that I learned most of my baseball from George Kissel. Uh, that's when Joe told me, he said, you said that, I knew you were the guy for me and everything. So, But, I mean, you know, Tony Russo is the world. Uh, there's just so many people that were touched by George Kissel and, uh, you know, his teaching techniques and uh, knowledge of the game. It just... Uh, he was a, he's a legend for me. Now, you know, like you mentioned, a ton of future big leaguers there in Greensboro. What do you remember about a really young Don Mattingly? Well, first of all, he's a left fielder. Um, Todd Demeter was the first baseman who was a high draft pick, and he was about 6'6", six, six, and Donnie was about 5'11", or whatever he is. And the thing about Donnie is that he was very, just great concentration. He hit the ball to left field, left center field. He did not pull the ball very much. He didn't hit a lot of home runs. But he was just a dedicated player, and uh, I also ran the instruction league. And when I went down to the instruction league, somebody from New York called, and she Don, Donnie could throw right-handed. People didn't realize that, but he could throw right-handed, just like George Brett could throw left-handed. So they wanted me to work him out of second base a little bit, thinking that he may not hit enough to play left field. So they wanted me to work him out of second base, which we did. And you know, he was decent, but it really wasn't him, you know. And then what happened after that? Um, Actually, we were down, and Mickey Vernon, who was one of our coaches, Mickey said to Donnie, he said, Donnie, you're, you're, not a, you're not a second baseman. He said, if anything, you may be a good first baseman. But the next year, they moved him to first base in, in AA, and you know, the rest is history with Donnie because he became one of the best defensive first basemen as well as one of the great hitters. But he always credited uh, Lou Pinella for teaching him how to get backspin on the ball, and that's when he started hitting home runs and everything else. But... It was a good example of a, a young hitter who hit the ball hard the opposite field. Those guys hit the ball hard the opposite field usually become really good hitters because they can always learn how to pull a ball. But young hitters who pull a ball, they have a lot of trouble learning how to go the other way and use the whole field. So, so Donnie was just a natural hitter from day one, and you know, he wasn't a very high draft choice, but you know, a very good athlete, very dedicated, and a yeah, smart kid. Well, you also had a guy that we know well here in Kansas City. That's we love him, and you know, was Rex Hudler just as nutty back then? What was a young Rex Hudler like? <laughs> Rex was the best. I mean, you know, you talk about a guy that's an energized buddy. Uh, everything you guys see him out there, that's nothing. That's not fake. That's him. And uh, he was in about a ball for about seven years, I think. And uh, he was in Lauderdale, and they sent him up to me in Greensboro, which actually was demotion because Lauderdale was a higher A team than Greensboro was, and. Uh, he came there, and I knew a little bit of, of him from spring training, and uh, he came up there, and you could see he was all wide-eyed, and uh, he, was, he was a hell of an athlete. You know, he played football, I guess, in high school, and uh, he was a great athlete, but not a good, real good baseball player yet. So uh, I saw his abilities. He was a shortstop, and, uh, and I knew for him to go far, he had to be able to play second base also. So I worked with him at second quite a bit, and he still credits me with a guy that taught him how to play second base, but he was easy to teach because he was so enthusiastic and he worked so hard and uh, he just a joy to be around. So, uh, again, I followed his career all the way to the big leagues and uh, he, you know, he made himself a player and now he's a great broadcaster and, you know, I look forward to seeing him every year in Kansas City and uh, we talk about the old times. But, again, he was, he was what coaching's all about. When a guy like that or Don like that, Don Mattingly, uh, when they're on your team, uh, it makes you a better coach and smarter, that's for sure. But, it gives you a lot of gratification because they're so enthusiastic, they're so dedicated, and they're just hungry to learn how to play the game. You also had, like you mentioned, Otis Nixon, but the last two guys from that team I wanted to ask you about that play for the Royals, Matt Winters and Greg Gagne. What do you remember about them? Well, Matt Winters played for me about three different places. Uh, he batted behind Madley in, in Greensboro. He batted behind Jim Eisenreich in Memphis. And then he went to, uh, he got to the big leagues with us for a little while in, in Kansas City, and he played a pretty good career over in Japan. But, yeah, Matty was a power hitter that, uh, you know, he played the outfield. He was decent. It wasn't a gold glover by any means. But, but again, he was uh, a great teammate, and uh, he had a lot to do with Jim Eisenreich turning his life around. Uh, you know, 1987, I had Eisenreich in Memphis, and he was making his comeback after, you know, going through some situation with Tourette's and everything. But, you know, Matty and him hooked up, and, uh, you know, Jim was a very introverted type of guy, but a tremendous person. And Matty, uh, he kind of took him under his wing and, you know, took him out to dinner at night and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, he really, he really helped Jim turn it around. And Nisey was one of the best athletes I ever had. And uh, that year in uh, Memphis, he was just a DH because he had a sore elbow. 
and he couldn't throw, but we weren't going to force him to do anything. But he was a man amongst boys in that league as far as being a hitter, and then eventually went to Kansas City and the rest is history. But, uh, but Matt Winters was great to him, and Matt was a great player himself. And Greg Gagne, I had him in uh, Greensboro. He was like 18 years old then. Um, played shortstop, played second base, and uh, again, you could see the ability. He just wasn't really polished at that time, of course, being 18 years old, but again, he had a great work ethic. Uh, he was a smart kid, and he made himself a good big league player also. Now from 83 to 85, you go to the Met system then between A Jackson, A Tidewater, league champs at Tidewater in 85, but i got to ask you about this 1984 Tidewater Tides team. So if I'm reading this right, you only had one player on that team, a guy named Rich Pickett. He was the only guy that never made the big leagues on that team. Is that even possible? Well, I don't, you know, I don't know what the stats were, the figures were, but I know I managed for two years, and I think just about everybody made it to the big leagues yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was the old days. You know, guys paid their dues. They, they worked you know, one level at a time, basically, learned how to play the game. And, uh, you know, if you weren't like a major league insurance player or a prospect, uh, you, know, you didn't have a job in AAA then. Every one of those guys had a chance to get to the big leagues, where now it's a little bit different because a lot of guys just stabilizes to make some of the younger guys better. But yeah, we had uh, again the Mets uh, system was it was you know stacked that those two years and three years. Uh, Frank Cash and the general manager, he, he just kept stockpiling players and finally brought them to the big leagues and they won the World Series. But uh, again, I was fortunate to coach some very good players in Tidewater and manage them in two years, and you know Kevin Mitchell's of the world and all those kind of guys. Uh, Again, it was fun. I mean, I was fortunate to, to have, you know, great teams when I managed, so everybody thought I was smart. Yeah, you, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> you had uh, a few Royals there, too. You had Angel Salazar, Ross Jones, Terry Leach, uh, a guy right. that we, we spoke with recently there as well. But then you get to uh, so 86 then. So I'm going to ask you about Glens Falls, the Tigers, double-A in the Eastern League. Now, one of the guys you had is a guy who's now a fireman in Rochester, New York, who was one of the first responders on 9-11, a very outgoing and guy, Ray Palacios. What do you remember about him? <laughs> He's a beauty. But uh, again, he was very enthusiastic. Him and, uh, and Rex Hudler were similar in a lot of ways, you know, just a uh, ball of fire and, and very enthusiastic. And uh, Ray played for me in the double-A in Glens Falls and eventually got to the big leagues with Kansas City, and I had something to do with recommending him, but... Ray was a catcher. He could really throw. He wasn't a good hitter, but he was a pretty good, you know, tough out. And he just battled. And, but he talked a lot. I mean, one day I told him he's in the dugout, and you know, I give him a day off. He's in the dugout, and he's chirping. He just, he just doesn't shut up. You know, he's just hyper. <laughs> I said, Ray, why don't you just put a baseball in your mouth and shut up? Well, he did. He actually could put a baseball in his mouth. And he became a little famous for that. <laughs> Matter of fact, when we were in Kansas City, we played in Texas one time, and they did a radio or TV show on him. And he said, yeah, my manager, Bob Schaefer, told me to shut up and put a baseball in my mouth, and ever since then I could do it. But, uh, <laughs> but I talked to him a lot. He calls me, and, uh, you know, he's, he's just a genuine person. And, uh, you know, he's a real good firefighter up there to save a lot of lives up there in Rochester and, uh, and so forth. But, again, it's just another guy that he got to the big leagues on his, on his uh, work habits. Uh, a little limited, but he, uh, he did get to the big leagues. And uh, he's like a like baseball rat, but he was another guy that was really – fun to uh, to manage. Yeah, yeah. Well, 87 is where it gets extra interesting for me. So you come over to the Royals organization. So Memphis Chicks, you mentioned that earlier. You know, what led you to, you know, how, what connection did you have to get that job? How'd you get that job? Well, actually, I thought I was going to go to Royals a year before that. You know, when I left the Mets, you know, they offered me another job with the Mets, but I, I didn't want to stay there. I knew I was kind of dead in the street there. So I was trying to get to the big league. So uh, I went to the Tigers thinking that, uh, you know, Bill Joy was the general manager who was, you know, we're really good friends, and I was thinking I was going to maybe, you know, spark at a bunch of older coaches that maybe if I did a good job, I might, you know, get a shot in the big leagues, but that wasn't going to happen, I didn't think, but then the Royals called me, John Bowles was uh, the farm director, and, and he called me about managing in Memphis, and uh, I said, well, what about Triple A? now I got a guy in mind for Triple A. I said, okay, I mean, Double A is really probably the best place to manage, because the kids are still enthusiastic, and and, you know, they have the talent level, and they just need a little polishing up. Whereas AAA, sometimes you get a bunch of rejects that, not really rejects, but, you know, guys have been in the big leagues, they come back down, and they're not real happy being in AAA and everything. So it's a little more difficult in AAA. But anyway, I know Memphis was a great city and everything, and, and Bowles, he, uh, he hired me there, and he wouldn't tell me who the AAA manager was going to be. So I said, all right. So a little while later, that's when they hired John Walton, who uh, was one of the guys I really uh, thank for, me getting to the big leagues. Between John Bowles and John Walton, I, I probably never would have got to the big leagues. But, you know, Duke and I roomed together in spring training. We hit it off right away. I mean, he's a great baseball guy and was a really good player with the Royals. And uh, 
So we roomed together. We talked baseball all the time, and he told me if I ever get a big league job, uh, you'd be one of my coaches. I said, well, I appreciate you saying that, Duke, but I've heard that before from a couple other guys. <laughs> he said, well, I'm not those two guys, and I'm real. And sure enough, you know, he became a manager, and then uh, in 88, when he was, you know, I guess he went up to 87 and finished the year, and in 88, that's when he called me to offer me the first base coaching job. And uh, so he got me to the big leagues, and, and John Bowles, he helped convince Scherholz to let, uh, you know, Duke pick most of his coaches. And, uh, and again, John Scherholz is one of the best people I ever worked for as a general manager, and I worked for him again later with the Braves. But, uh, but it's a great organization. With Bowles, he's the farm director, and John Scherholz is the general manager, and and Duke is a manager, and we had really good coaches and everything. So I guess I was in the right spot at the right time and uh, met the right people, and and I was fortunate to get to the big leagues. Yeah, a lot of hard work, though. A lot of years put in. So Greensboro, uh, before we get to KC, we mentioned Matt Winters and Jim Eisenreich earlier. You had both of them. You had Mel Stottlemyre Jr., Rick Lucan, Melito Perez, Jose DeJesus. I mean, that one summer in Memphis, you know, what sticks out? What are your favorite memories there, uh, you know, managing the Chicks? Well, it was just a great ballpark and everything, and um, you know we had we we had we didn't have a lot of pitching. I don't think, but we had some good players, and uh, you know some of the pitches were well good also. And uh, we uh, you know, it was just a fun time, and uh, you know of course with Eisen right there and, and Matt Winters, uh, it was a fun team to watch. You know as well as uh, we had a good time, and uh, every, everywhere I managed, I all seemed to have a good time because the players make you have a good time, and I try to make them have a good time, and. Uh, and I always found that the players are learning and, and getting better. Uh, you never have a problem with discipline or any of that kind of stuff. And uh, and we all worked together. We all helped each other out and uh, had good coaches and everything. And uh, so it was a it was really good good experience. Now you get to Kansas City, like you said, John Wathen and, and and Bowles bring you up in sure holes, and you get to KC and you're around a lot of great players. So I want to start off by asking you, what was it like being around George Brett on a daily basis? Well, I can tell you about George Brett. He might be the you know, the best guy I've been around in baseball. It's hard to say that because I've been around a lot of good people. But, number one, George loved to play baseball. He had a great personality. He was a great teammate. And he was a great hitter, of course. And he was a real good first baseman. He was third baseman before I got there. He became first baseman. And uh, he used to tell me, he said, everybody thinks first base is easy. It's not easy. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, he he just, uh, you know, he became a great first baseman. But, you know, he's probably the clutchest hitter I've ever been around. I mean, when his stuff is, you know, when it, Base are loaded, the game's on the line. You know, you always wanted George up there, but he treated me very well too. I'm, mean, I'm, I'm some guy off the streets, basically. You know, the high school coach. I was going to get to the big leagues, and he says to me, he says, uh, "Where are you living in uh, Kansas City?" I said, "I don't know. I was making thirty thousand dollars, and uh, and you know, I don't know how far that's going to go in Kansas City. Of course, it's 1988, so that was pretty good money then." So he says, "Well, I have this room or a uh, suite on top of this hotel, like downtown, that he got for doing some commercials." He said, "Why don't you and your wife stay there?" I said, you yeah, know, that sounds good to me. I said, I'll find an apartment sooner or later. He said, yeah, don't take your time, whatever. So we go there and uh, fly my wife from, from Connecticut and uh, for opening day and everything. So we go up to this suite. It's all white, white rugs, uh, white. Everything's white. It's unbelievable. My wife looks at me and says, what the hell took you so long to get to the big leagues? <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's George. I mean, you know, here I am. Uh, you know, he didn't really know me other than, you know, of course, I met him in spring training. But... Yeah, here I am, a guy off the street, so to speak, and he treated me like uh, like I was somebody really important. And uh, but that's how George is. I mean, I'm still very friendly with him when I see him in spring training or during the season. And uh, he's just an all-American guy. And uh, is uh, you know, again, he didn't became good by accident. He, he you know became good by hard work and and loving the game. And the thing is, when the young kid come up from the minor leagues, they say, Shafe, uh, you know, what, what am I supposed to do here?" I say, "Just just follow number five, do what he does, and you'll be fine." Yeah, that's for sure. Another guy. The, what's the most amazing thing you ever saw Bo Jackson do? And what was what was it like being around Bo Jackson? Well, he was tremendous. I mean, he to me, he could have been the best baseball player to ever played the game. I mean, really? He played like everybody else, like on instructional leagues, and and worked his way through the minor leagues one step at a time. Uh, I mean, he could throw the ball farther and very accurate. He could run faster. He could hit the ball farther. I mean, he had more tools than anybody. I don't think he ever played the game. It's really a, unfortunate that he got injured and. Uh, he did come back, but he wasn't the same player. But no, Bo was, uh, he, he was, you know, he was just tremendous to watch him play. And uh, he was very crude in a lot of ways because he wasn't a real baseball player, but he became a baseball player the more he played. And, uh, but I mean, he could do things like he ran up the wall at the time in Baltimore. Uh, 
you know, one time uh, I'm coaching first base in spring training, and it has substitute umpires, and one of them called him out on strikes. And, you know, Bo gave him a little look and started going back to the dugout, and the umpire kind of baited him, so Bo charged back at him. So I ran down from first base to get between him and the umpire. Next thing you know, I'm like three feet off the ground. Bo <laughs> picked me up by my elbows, turned around and placed me down. So I ran back to first base. <laughs> and all the guys at Rangers dug out there laughing like, oh, because, you know, here I am up in the air and I'm down. So I go back to first base and, you know, Bo eventually gets away from the umpire. But the next day I said to him, I said, Bo, you know, I just trying to keep out of trouble. He said, well, d- d- don't, don't fool me when, when, I'm, when I'm mad or something like that. <laughs> and he stuttered and everything, but... But he was a tremendous guy. I mean, uh, he just—he's uh, very smart. He's got a very smart wife and had two little kids. So I guess they're pretty big kids right now. But uh, it was just a different culture in those days, from '88 to this. Like my last few years coaching, I mean, it's just uh, there was a lot more unity, I think, because they played together longer. They came through the system, most of them, and uh, and Bo was just—he uh, was a great teammate too, and just a tremendous talent to watch. <laughs> now, my all-time favorite Royals player, and you're going to be shocked I bring this guy up, but you've never been asked a question about him before, but Brad Wellman, who, by the way, is going to be coming to Kansas City with my good friends at the Kansas City Baseball Historical Society doing a little meet-and-greet shave, so I get to meet him coming up here in the month of March, which I'm excited about. But, you know, what do you remember about Brad Wellman? <laughs> no, he, was, he was just a down-and-dirt guy who, uh, again, he made himself a player. He was, you know, utility infielder. That just played hard all the time. He's smart. He took advantage of his ability, and uh, kind of always a backup guy. But again, he was just uh, he was fun to coach. And I remember I'd use an example. Uh, I was, uh, you know, Kurt Stillwell was our shortstop, and uh, Kurt had tremendous ability. Also, I mean, he could he had probably the truest, strongest arm from shortstop of anybody ever seen. And he had short, quick swing, and uh, you know, he could hit home runs. Early in his career, and all of a sudden he got he changed his swing around a little bit. But but Kurt was uh, not a real confident guy, which you know a lot of big leaguers don't really have a lot of confidence. With the average fan doesn't understand. But one day I'm walking down a runway, and uh, you know next to Kurt, and Kurt's like tapping his glove. And I said, Kurt, uh, well, what's the matter? He says, I don't know if I can catch the ball today. I said, What do you mean? He says, My glove doesn't feel right. I said, Well, I'll tell you what, Kurt, just don't tell the pitcher. <laughs> so he, he laughed. I tried to loosen him up a little bit. And he laughed. And uh, I said, Kurt, let me tell you what you're doing. Because I was a shortstop myself. I said, you go out there, and when you think you want to play, take two steps forward, so you play two steps shallower, and you'll be fine. Well, he did, and, you know, he made all the plays again, get his confidence back. But, I mean, that's what happens, you know. And then I did tell him later, getting back to Brad Wellman, I said, well, how would you like to have Brad Wellman's ability? I mean, you got tremendous ability. <laughs> it was not a knock on Brad. It's just that Brad, you know, he never – Brad was very confident. He said, you know, he, there was no challenge he didn't want to meet. So – but Brad didn't have the arm or some of the other skills that Kurt Stillwell had. But but Brad was still a very good uh, player for us and a very very valuable uh, you know utility guy. Yeah, yeah, love it. That's great. That's great stuff. So, 1989, one of those years you had Wellman and Stillwell and all those guys. You guys won 92 games, but those damn A's would not lose that year. You know what sticks out about 1989? It was I guess it was the biggest uh, attendance year in Royals history until this past year. Yeah. No, which, again, we just had a solid team. I mean, we had, um, you know, Sarah Higgins, Gubaza, and Steve Farr in the bullpen. And, uh, you know, we had a good pitching staff. We had a solid team. Uh, again, everybody played together. We played the game the right way. And in those days, you used to take infield every day. And uh, it was just pure baseball. And, uh, you know, that was before the play, uh, the wild card. If they had a wild card, we would have been in the playoffs. But, uh, like I said, Oakland was really good. And uh, we just... Uh, yeah, you know, we played well. We just came up a little short because Oakland was really good. Yeah, and then 1990, one of the more disappointing years in Royals history. So you get the dreaded SI endorsement as World Series champions, largest payroll in baseball, which is hard to believe. They signed Mark and Storm Davis. So, you know, what happened that year? What went wrong that year? Yeah, you know, Mark Davis, I mean, he was Cy Young the year before in, in San Diego. And I remember uh, Duke called me on Christmas. We just got a Christmas present. We signed Mark Davis. I said, oh, that sounds good. So now we had two Cy Youngs, him and Saberhagen. So we go in there thinking everything's going to be, you know, rosy and we're going to kind of breeze through this, but it just didn't work out. You know, Mark, being a guy he was, who was a tremendous person, I think he tried to be too good and tried to justify his uh, the money they paid him. And so he put a lot of pressure on himself. He just was not the same pitcher he was in San Diego. And a few other things, you know, went haywire, but uh, it just, 
well, like our team in Washington this year, you know, you think you're going to be good, but if some guys underachieve or some guys get hurt or it doesn't work out, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to work out the way you want it to be. So it just, just didn't work out real well. Well, 1991, you get moved up to bench coach, and then John Wathen, unfortunately, uh, gets let go that year after things didn't start off well. But you served as interim manager for one day, so you go 1-0. and But before we talk about that, you know, what do you remember about, uh, about John being fired? Were you kinda, did you know it was coming, or were you guys kind of blindsided by that? No, I didn't know it was coming. I know there was some, you know, there was some chirping in the front office. Uh, I think the assistant GM wanted someone else to be the manager, and he talked to Kirk Robinson into you know, changing managers. But... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, it was my birthday, and John Watson called me that morning, and I thought he was going to call me and say happy birthday, and he called me and said that I'm fired, and you're the new manager, interim manager. I said, well, that's not too good. I mean, it was good for me, but it was bad for me because Duke brought me in, and uh, he was one of my best friends in baseball, and I thought he did a, a tremendous job. It's just that I mean, we just didn't play that well for a while, but it wasn't his fault. So they made the move, and I became the manager, and uh, you know, it was always my lifelong dream to be a big league manager, so here I am for... I don't know how long it's going to last, but I don't know it wasn't going to last too long. But we had Kirk Gibson was one of the guys in the team, and you know, of course, everybody loved uh, Gibby, you know, the way he played and everything. And I brought him in the office, and I said, Gibby, uh, let me tell you, you've been batting fourth to fifth, uh, you're not doing too good driving and runs, but we need a little jump start here. So you know what? I don't feel about the lead off, but you're going to bat lead off today. I said, What do you think? He says, uh, yeah, No, no problem. I said, You know, the best lead off hitter in baseball is Ricky Henderson. And you can do what he can do. You get any home runs, you can steal a base. Because Gibby was a very gifted athlete, as you know. Yeah. So he said, yeah, that sounds good. I said, well, not a bad news is the big unit's pitching. You know, Randy Johnson. <laughs> I said, that's bad news. So I said, good luck. Just try to get on base any way you can, and uh, we'll see what happens. Well, <laughs> then I bring Flash Gordon in, and uh, I'm telling Flash he's the best pitcher in baseball and all this stuff. You know, he's starting that day. I said, you're the best pitcher in baseball. I said, you know, I go all the way back to the instruction league. I said, it might be the only game I ever managed in my life, so uh, you got the whole game. Just go out there and don't even look in the dugout. You got nine innings. Go get them. Okay, okay. So we ended up winning three to one. I remember the last inning. Uh, he had a home run off Flash, and I just looked at him. And you know, that was days before you had to really count pitches, you know. But he was still pitching well, and he still had a lot left. So he looked in the dugout. I just gave him a little nod. I said, "Go ahead, finish it off." And he did. So we won three to one. So that was a thrill that we won three to one. And Afterwards, Gibby came in. He said, uh, thanks, Shafe. I needed a charge. <laughs> well, next time we had a day off, then I hired Hal McCray, and, and Gibby was back uh, you know, on the fifth, sixth by wherever he was. So that was one good time, and uh, yeah, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, did you get to, you know, do you still have that lineup card? Yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. I still have it hanging on my wall here. It's getting a little faded off, but I still have it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, you. Yeah. You uh, so following that year, 1992, you were a special assignment scout with the Royals. What exactly was that role? Well, uh, after that year when Hal took over, uh, you know, Hal was he was you know really good guy. He was great to me. Uh, he didn't have any managerial experience at all, and uh, so he relied on me a lot. To start to give signs. He didn't know how to give signs, so I gave signs and taught him how to give the signs. And we finished out the year. I mean, we didn't know Smokey Gear and I were both brought in by uh, John Walton and. We didn't know from day to day if we were going to still be there. We go to the ballpark and we thought our locker might be cleaned out. We didn't know what was going to happen. So finally we went to him and he said, no, you guys are going to finish the year out and we'll see what happens. Well, um, so at the end of the year, you know, Hal wanted to bring his own guys in, a couple guys anyway, and I had no problem with that. I mean, John Walton brought me to the party and now it's Hal's party. So uh, yeah, we remained really good friends and uh, I understood that. I mean, if I was in his shoes, I'd say, you know, same thing. So. Again, that's getting back to being an interim manager. I mean, that's how it works. You know, you're, you're sad because your buddy got fired. Then you're happy because you're the manager. In the end of the year, you're looking for a job. So it happens many, many times, interim managers. But anyway, I, uh, I just didn't really feel like I wanted to go back to the minor leagues. I want to try something else. And, uh, you know, scouting was always something I, I wanted to do. And the late uh, Chuck Brinkman, or not Chuck, but Eddie Brinkman, major league scout, he, he used to talk to him all the time. And he said, the best job in baseball is a major league scout. So. Instead of going back to the minor league, see if he can scout. So I talked to Herc about it. Herc was a great person and everything, and he, I know he felt bad firing me because you know, he was just a real nice guy. But that didn't matter because I understood the situation and all that kind of stuff. But I told him, I said, Herc, I really want to scout. I'd really like to be a scout. He says, really? I said, yeah. He said, you sure don't want to go back in the field? I said, well, I'm not saying I would never want to go back in the field, but I said, right now I'd really like to scout. I, mean, I knew the major leagues for being there four years, and... Uh, so long story short, he hired me to be a major league scout, and 
I really enjoyed it, you know, for that one year. And then uh, the way he gets back, uh, you know, I was only making, I forget it was, but a lot less than I was making as a coach. So he wants to hire me back the next year to be a scout again. I said, well, Herc, I, you know, I like that, but he said, uh, you know, I really can't live on the money you're paying me. He said, well, uh, you know, that's how the Royals, I to work for the Royals. I said, no doubt it is, but I went to the grocery store the other day, and I told him I worked for the Royals, and they said, I don't care, you still got to pay. <laughs> so I said, that, that, that ain't going to work out too good, Herc. So in the meantime, I uh, made a couple phone calls from buddies, and the Red Sox, you know, wanted to hire me, and uh, they paid me a lot more and everything. And and then the Royals came back, wanted to keep me, so they were going to match it, and it, it went back and forth. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, I lived in Connecticut. I was working for the, wanted to work for the Red Sox. The Royals were very good to me, but... You know, they, they had their chance at first, but uh, and I just felt it was best for me to you know go and go to the Red Sox. So that's what happens. Yeah, 94 to 98, you're director of player development. Now, this is kind of a cool story, you know, coming full circle. So you bring in Bob Guerin uh, as manager in the farm system there, and then he hires you as bench coach in Oakland in 2007. Talk about uh, Bob. Yeah, well, actually, he was there already. We had a lot of good people in place with the Red Sox, and um, I brought some other people in I knew from the past, and you know, I knew the experienced coaches, and, and one thing I'm proud of, I and mean, we had some good players come through the Red Sox, and one thing I'm really proud of is the fact we had 18 guys who coached for me or managed me got to the big leagues. You know, Ken Mock, I mean, there's 18 of them that got to the big leagues as a coach, and, of course, Garen and Mock became managers. But uh, but we all worked together. We, You know, I had to, I made a book, uh, wrote a book on fundamentals, and we had our own way of doing it with the Red Sox. Everybody's on the same page, and it really became, uh, you know, the, you know, smooth run organization with the help of all the guys that work for me and everything. And uh, so, you know, we had four or five good years there, and then all of a sudden I got I got dumb, and uh, Duquette called me up and he said I'm going to make a change. So he offered me another job in the organization. I said I don't want that, so I left. But I mean, it was a good it was a good run there for a while, and I certainly enjoyed being in charge. And and you know, because I handled everything that happened on the field. I was like the field coordinator. I hired the staff. You know, I, I placed them in, in you know different towns and. You know, you know, with different teams and everything. So, and we had great communication, and we had some really high-notch guys. Like I said, a lot of them got to the big leagues, but um, that was a good experience there. Ninety-eight to two thousand special assistant uh, to the GM with Baltimore, and then you come back to KC as bench coach, infielders coach in '01. So, you know, how did you get back to KC again? Well, um, Albert Barrett was general manager, and Tony Tony Musa was the manager, and I knew Tony real well, and of course I knew Albert from working there before. Albert was a scouting director, or he was in the scouting operations before he became a general manager. And one day he called me and he said, uh, I need a strong bench coach for uh, Tony. He said, would you come back? I said, yeah, I'd come back. So I interviewed, and, uh, and Tony Musa to me was, you know, he got a knock, at, you know, I didn't knock him in Kansas City, some people did, but Tony Musa was a tremendous baseball guy. He was old school. He believed in discipline, and Tony did, to me, a great job with a lot of those younger players and even those older players in Kansas City, but he just was shorthanded. They just didn't have the, you know, the talent. But uh, he was on thin ice, and uh, so I'd come in there and try to you know, do the best I can to help him and everything. And um, you know, from day one, you know, you know, sports writers or talk show guys were all you know, finding fault everything Tony did and everything. He lasted about, well, I don't know, maybe two months. And... Uh, Maybe a month. I don't know when it was. He got fired. We were in Detroit one night, and he got fired after being going to get fired like every day since the season started. But uh, so Tony got fired, and uh, and John Mizrock was there before. They made him the interim manager, which was fine with me because I I told Allie when he came in that you know if Tony gets fired, I don't want to be the manager. I said uh, I didn't come here to be the manager. I came here to help Tony and do the best I can with the other coaches and everything else. So they ended up firing. You know, Mizrock was a uh, interim manager for in a couple weeks, I think, and they hired Tony Pena. So when Tony came in, I went to him, I said, Tony, if you want your own bench coach, I said, I can go home. He said, no, no, no. He said, and I had Tony's brother in, in Glens Falls, and I knew Tony a little bit from the Red Sox. So he said, no, I need you, I need you. And Tony, again, he managed a little bit in the rookie league or something, but uh, he came in, he was a ball of fire. I mean, he was a very enthusiastic as guy, as you know, and as a player and as a manager. And, and Tony, did, I thought he did a tremendous job, you know, getting everything together there and uh so we used to talk all the time the first year, and you know we weren't real good. We I think we lost 100 games, maybe more than that. But uh, we were kind of building for the next year. So he wanted me to be the, uh, the bench coach and the infield coach, and uh, so I had all the fundamentals I had with the Red Sox. And I said, Tony, look, I'm going to put all these fundamentals together. I'm going to give them to you. I'll give you like one day to rundowns, one day's relays and cutoffs, or one week at a time. I said, you look it over, 
and we change anything you want to change or add or subtract or whatever. So we did that. So we made a manual together. And we went to spring training in 2003, and, you know, I organized spring training, and we had a, it was a great, it was like an instructional league type of spring training. But we had to do that because we had a lot of young players that we had to get better quick. Angel Burrow was one of them, and, uh, and we had several young guys. Well, anyway, we jump out of the gates real quick. I don't know what the, I don't know, I think it's like 16 and 1 or something. Yeah, 16 and was, 4 but. or something, or 3, 16 and 3, yeah. Yeah, so we jump out real quick, and everybody's saying, oh, where the hell did they come from? But, you know, they were well prepared. Um, you know, Mike Sweeney was one of the key guys, of course, and, uh, you know, knowing the kind of guy he is and the player he was, you know, he was our leader, and the pitching was good. And, and all the way to the end, uh, I think the last three weeks, uh, we dropped out. We had a couple of key pitchers get hurt, so we dropped out of the race. But uh, at the All-Star break, I think we had a four- or five-game lead, and uh, we were hanging on. We just couldn't hang on long enough. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, before we get to that season, I wanted to make a comment too. I thought I thought Muser got a raw deal. I thought he. I, I never. I never understood the hate for him either. He didn't have a bullpen either. You know, I, no. how are you supposed to manage? If you don't have a bullpen, right? <laughs> no. Yeah, Tony was. I mean, again, he was a tremendous baseball guy, and he, if he had a little better players, a little more talent, uh, he could have been very successful manager. He was a great hitting guy. <clears throat> you know, he was a hitting coach for a while before he became manager and everything. And uh, he was just. He was very solid. Yeah, and, and getting back, when he didn't he get himself ejected on purpose in Detroit because he knew he was getting fired, or am I misremembering that? Is that right? Yeah, uh, he might have got ejected. He, I mean, he, there was a lot of frustrations with him. I, I really felt bad for him because, I mean, you know, it's tough. Any job, you know, any day you're going to get fired, and uh, it's really not justified, but, you know, it just becomes a snowball type of thing. And, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time after games talking about stuff and everything. And, uh, you know, one thing about Tony, he didn't, he didn't change. He didn't, you know. He did it his way, and it was the right way, and everything. And uh, he was just a very solid guy. And it's it's uh, it's unfortunate right now he's not doesn't have a job somewhere in baseball because you know baseball needs guys like him. Agree. So you mentioned '03, great start. You know, they were you guys were in first place in mid-August. You pull Jose Lima out of the independent leagues, and uh, you know that's a, you know just a bizarre season, a fun season in Royals history. Uh, a few guys I wanted to ask you about from that team. Talk about Mike Sweeney. Uh, Mike was Superman. I mean, he was uh, just, a, again, a, a tremendous human being. But uh, you needed a hit, you got a hit. You needed a single, you got a single. You needed a home run, you hit a home run. Uh, I remember sometimes a couple of pitches, like, you know, I tried to brush him back and knock him down, and that was a kiss of death for them because Mike could bounce back up and hit a bullet somewhere. And, uh, you know, Mike wasn't the best first baseman, uh, he, but he worked as hard as anybody, and I must hit him a million ground balls in, in the years I was there with him, and uh, he kept working at it, working at it. But, the kind of person he was, if he'd make an error, he'd come in and sit next to me on the bench and say, Shafe, I'm sorry. <laughs> I said, Mike, don't be sorry. I said, you know, you tried. Just, you know, maybe you took a bad hop or something, you know. <laughs> but uh, he he was really uh, a special guy. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, he led us all the way. And some other guys did well also. But, uh, you know, it, it was a team effort. And, but Mike was uh, probably, well, if not the best hitter in the league, he was right there. A guy that I think might be one of the most underrated players in Royals history. Talk about uh, Joe Randa. Right, Joe was very solid. I mean, he was uh, a baseball player, uh, you know, a really solid player. He's a real good third baseman. He was he batted, I think, right in front of Mike or maybe behind Mike. Uh, but they were two a good one-two punch, and uh, Joe got a lot of big hits for us too. He didn't have the home run power that that Mike might have had, but he had a lot of you know, extra base hits and. Uh, he really knew how to play. He knew what he was doing on the field, and uh, very rarely to make a mistake. And you know, a good base runner without a lot of speed. But again, he was uh, he was a very big part of our team. And then the other guy I wanted to ask you about from that team, though he lost way too young. You know, what did Jose Lima bring to that '03 team? Well, again, he brought a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, Jose was he was awesome. God bless his soul. Uh, you know, he, he battled, didn't have the greatest stuff, but uh, he challenged hitters. He pitched around hitters. That he had to pitch around. He just knew what he was doing out there, and uh, he was he was great. And uh, I remember one day Tony Payne got ejected, so I'm the manager, and uh, our bullpen was pretty well depleted. And Jose is giving the umpire a little guff, you know. And uh, I, I got him in a dugout. I brought him behind that, uh, you know, behind the thing where the batting cage was. I just grabbed him by the shirt. I don't know what made me do. I grabbed him by the shirt and like kind of jacked him up a little bit. I said, Jose. You can't get thrown out of this game. I manage, and I got nobody in a bullpen. You can't get thrown out of this game. <laughs> he looked at me like, "Holy God, I guess so." <laughs> but I mean, that's the kind of guy he was, and uh, and he was great. Uh, great after that, he pitched like seven or eight innings, and uh, you know, winning the game. But he was a workhorse that uh, 
again, a great teammate, great enthusiastic guy. So 04, obviously very disappointing. 05, uh, Tony walked away on May 11th as manager. So I, I don't know how much you want to say or a little or more, but, I mean, were you as blindsided by him kind of just walking away as, as the players were in that clubhouse? Well, he kind of told me two or three days before he said, Shafe, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here. And that kind of surprised me. But, uh, yeah, I remember it was like 1.30 in the morning in Toronto. Albert Baird called me and he said, uh, Shafe, he said, uh, Tony's not with us anymore and I want you to uh, be the manager. I said, I'll do it if I can do it my way. He said, well, what's your way? I said, well, we're not taking pictures. We're up there hacking. we got to, we got to score some runs. We're going to go up there hacking. He said, I don't care. Just do, do what you want, you know. So <laughs> I took over, and uh, I had a meeting with the players uh, about my hitting philosophy. I said, you know, we're up there. The first pitch is where you want it. It's in a happy area. You're swinging. I said, we're not taking. I said, I don't want you swinging out of a happy area, but with no strikes. If the ball's in a happy area, you got to whack it. Now, with one strike, the happy area might get a little bigger. With two strikes, the happy area becomes a strike zone. Just put the ball and play with two strikes. So we, you know, it kind of worked. Uh, we started off real well. Uh, we had Emo Brown, who I always loved his talent. I mean, I brought every player into my office uh, with one of the coaches, the hitting coach or the pitching coach, and told them what I thought of them, what their role was going to be, and how it was going to be, and I don't know how much longer I'm going to be the manager, but while I'm the manager, this is how it's going to be. So I brought uh, Emo Brown in. I said, Emo, let me tell you something. I don't think you know how good you are. I said, you've got great ability, but well, you need is confidence. So you know what? I'm going to give you confidence. You're my right fielder. I don't care if you strike out four times tonight, you're still my right fielder. Now, if you strike out four times tomorrow night, we might have to think about this a little bit. <laughs> and, he, and he started laughing and everything. And, uh, but, you know, he, he, he did great. I mean, he had the confidence and, uh, you know, he got a lot of big hits for us, and some home runs and RBIs. And, uh, and he really uh, he, he did it, uh, you know, with a little confidence. But that, that shows you how much. I mean, a manager, a coach, or a teammate can instill confidence in a player in, in the fact that it's such a mental game. And I think the big role of a coach or manager is to show confidence in players. And you know, another example, like maybe four days into my managerial career there, uh, we had guys in first. There was a guy in first. He was on deck. And you can see this guy is about to walk the next guy. So we're going to have first and second. Nobody else. We're down to run. So I called him over from the on-deck circle. I said, Emo, and this guy walks. They're going to think that you're going to bunt them over. You're not bunt. Look for a ball over the plate and knock the hell out of it. So sure enough, the guy walked. And then, uh, you know, he, he comes up there and, uh, you know, it's first and second, nobody out. And, you know, I guess by the you know, rules of baseball or, you know, by the book, I guess you could say you probably should have bunted. But I had, a, I had a rule. Bunters don't hit and hitters don't bunt. And he was one of my hitters, so he's not bunting. So, of course, first pitch, he whacks in the left center field alley. We scored two runs. Go ahead. Everybody's happy. Now, if he had a ground ball at the shortstop double play, everybody would say, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> but that's the way I, I managed. And, uh, and, again, I put that thought in his mind, and uh, he executed, and, you know, he was a hero. So it was really uh, it was something that, uh, you know, some of the you know, successes or some of the satisfaction he gives the manager. And uh, Emo is definitely one of my guys. Now, did you ever feel like you had a legit shot that second time around to get in the job, or did you kind of know it was just interim? No, I knew it was interim because, you know, they – all the managers before me were had no big league experience, and I know they came out and said that they wanted a guy with a big league experience. Um, you know, I know that they uh, they said I was a candidate, but uh, <clears throat> you know, Frank White was a candidate. He had no big league experience, and uh, you know, Frank hadn't managed any anyway, managed double A, I guess. But uh, but I, I, I kind of knew that it was short lived, and uh, it lasted three weeks. Uh, we were going good for a while, and all of a sudden, the pitching was we didn't have any pitching to start with, but. Uh, we played good. We were like five and five, and all of a sudden we lost five or six games in a row. And and I don't think it was because of that, but uh, they had their eyes on Buddy Bell. And Buddy, you know, it was a good match because he got to the big as a young player, which we had a lot of young players. Uh, he had managed a couple other places, so he had experience. So Allard picked him as a manager. And, uh, and uh, again, I finished the year out with Buddy, and Buddy was great to me. Uh, he's really one tremendous person, people, and, uh, but he was he found out quickly that uh, we didn't have much pitching, and uh, our offense wasn't bad, but we didn't have much pitching, and uh, he didn't make out too well either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget the the famous quote people still say around here that he said one time. He said, uh, "After being here, I'll never say it can't get worse." <laughs> <laughs> well, we lost 19 games in a row. It couldn't get much worse than that. <laughs> yeah, and, and Buddy was going nuts. He'd have a clubhouse meeting after every game. I think we ran a rave and everything. I'm going, Buddy, you're gonna have a heart attack. I said, "Just there's nothing to do." You know, these guys are playing as hard as they can. They just don't have it. I mean, we'd be ahead in the seventh inning. You know we're gonna lose. Just no matter how it's gonna happen, but we knew, you know, we couldn't hold a lead, and it was like, 
it, it was comical, but it was sad. And it was, uh, you know, I mean, it's a bad feeling when you know you're going to lose. And the worst thing is when the players know they're not too good, then you know your team is really in trouble. And the players figured out about halfway through the year that we weren't that good, and uh, it was all downhill after that. Yeah. Well, following 05, so special assignment scout for Atlanta in 06, then bench coach of Oakland uh, from, what, 2008 to 2010 year with Dodgers then uh, yeah. by Joe Torrey. So, you know, what was that like in L.A., and what was it like working with Joe? Uh, Joe was tremendous. I mean, everybody should have a chance of being Joe Torrey's coach. I mean, he treated me great, uh, and we had a good team out there, but we didn't have everything in, in order. I mean, it was a little bit... Uh, hodgepodge as far as some of the players but joe pulled them all together convinced them they could win we had a good coaching staff uh you know larry bow and i were best of friends and and we had you know rick Honeycutt was that um pitching coach who's, who's done a tremendous job for several years there but joe was just a calming force uh never panicked never showed emotion just was in charge uh, you know a quiet leader but uh they all respected him and uh you know we just we put a charge on, and we got to the playoffs at the end of the season, and then next year we got to the playoffs again. And um, then the last year I was there, you know, Joe left, and I had 12 years in the big leagues. I figured it's time for me to, you know, let some younger guy do it. And uh, so when Donnie took over as a manager, uh, I told him, I said, no, I'm not interested in being a coach anymore and uh, all that stuff. So he, you know, since John Donnie took over. But Joe was, uh, again, he was just uh, great to work with. He'd take us out to dinner on the road, on the road and stuff like that, and you just treat everybody with such great respect. Well, since 2011, you've been with the Nationals, like we talked about, so things are going good there. Now, last, I, I guess I wanted to come back, last four questions here, and come back to, to KC. Uh, you know, so when you think back to your Royals days, you know, both then and, you know, more recently, uh, you know, your favorite overall memories of, of Kansas City? Well, I just think that the people, I mean, they were so friendly, and, you know, like when I was there, 88 to 91, uh, they packed the stadium all the time, and, uh, I remember Kaufman, Ewing Kaufman, the owner, you know, he spent some money and he said, you know, I want to have a good team and have a lot of fans come to the ballpark. And he did. And, uh, you know, that's when he got the Mark Davis of the world. And, you know, he complimented or supplemented our team pretty well and under John Scherholz. And, uh, but it's exciting going to the ballpark. I mean, it's always been one of the best ballparks in baseball. I mean, it was way ahead of its time, you know, with the waterfalls and, 80 to 91 had a turf, which wasn't a whole lot of fun because some days it's like 130 degrees on that turf. But uh, <laughs> it's just a great place to go to work every day. And uh, and then going back to 2002, you know, the field was different and everything, but it's still the same, you know, the same uh, people around there. And uh, our team wasn't as good, but the enthusiasm was well. It's just that, you know, people lost interest because we weren't that good. And, uh, you know, Dayton Moore, I worked with Dayton Moore with Atlanta. And when he talked to me when he was – offered that job. He says, Shafe, what do you think? I said, uh, I think it's take that job. I said, Dayton, I'll tell you what, it's a great ballpark. It's a great city. they got great fans. They just don't come to the games because they got a lousy team. <laughs> I said, if you can do it your way and convince the owner how you got to do it, because Albert Baird, you know, Albert Baird did a great job, but his hands were tied because they didn't want to, they didn't really want to draft the best player because they didn't, you know, have the money to, to, you know, to sign him and everything. So we always got some secondary guys in the first, second rounds. And uh, but they went in there and revamped the whole minor league system and built up a nucleus down below. And then, you know, of course, the last two years it it, it paid off and uh, he got to where where they have to be. But Kansas City is just a tremendous place to play. I mean, how many you know how many players have uh, lived there now that played there? They yeah. just uh, moved their families there, and uh, it's just a super place to be. Now, speaking of living here and stuff, what you know, what part of town did you live in, and which parts of KC did you like the best as a city? Well, my first four years lived out in Blue Springs. Uh, you know, John Watson lived out there, and we had an apartment. Uh, those are days like budget ball. You know, we didn't make a lot of money, so we took what we had to get. And uh, I remember Smokey Garrett and I, we rented a Mercury Tracer together. <laughs> and we're driving down I-70, and I look at him, I Smoke, I said, we're big league coaches. What the hell are we doing as Mercury Tracer? <laughs> but, you know, that's all we made. And uh, people thought we made a lot of money, but, uh, you know, it was still better than the alternative. Uh, the pension plan was great. Their licensing uh, was good, and we had a great team then, so it was worth it. Then when they brought me back, uh, I had made a few more bucks then. I was getting a little older, and my kids were out of school and everything, so uh, we moved down to the plaza. And uh, my wife, you know, she loved the plaza. I loved the plaza, and uh, we had a lot of good friends and everything, and we used to go to Capitol Grill all the time. That was my wife's kitchen. Huh. Al would be in there doing his work late at night, and uh, it was just a great atmosphere. I mean, uh that were some of the best years of my life, Kansas City, and uh, I, again, it's just a tremendous place to be, and uh, 
people worked there and, and played there are very fortunate. Well, I guess the last question I have for you is, you know, in summary, what would you like to say uh, to Royals fans listening right now? I wish I was still there. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was there in the bench again after, you know, the last few years. But, uh, again, a guy like Mike Jersley, I was so happy he got to the big leagues. This guy worked his butt off in the minor leagues. He's a great minor league manager. Never got a shot to get there until the last couple of years, and he, he won a couple, you know, playoff World Series money. And, um, you know, they just have a, a good bunch of people. But, uh, you know, like I said, I rooted like crazy for them. Uh, I got friends on other teams also. But uh, I was so happy that, that for the people of Kansas City and, and for the players that, that paid their dues and for guys like Dayton Moore and his, his staff to, uh, you know, see rewards. And, and to see George Brett being so happy and enthusiastic in a, in a you know, dugout rooting for him or in a, in a booth up there rooting for him, uh, it just gives you, like, goosebumps. You know? So I would just... It was uh, tremendous that they got where they were, and uh, uh, some of Fangrass picked them to have a losing season this year, but let me tell you what, I don't see that happen. I think that they built a great thing, and I think the big thing is now they expected to win, and now they still expect to win. Or My days there in the early 200s or 2000s, we kind of knew we were going to lose, and the attitude, and uh, that means a whole lot, but uh, they go out there, like I said, every day to expect to win. They do what it takes to win, and they're well-coached and well-managed, and uh, they all play together, and it's it's old time baseball. Well, thanks so much, uh, you know, definitely for your time. First of all, but but all that you've given to the Royals organization, and it's been it's been a pleasure hearing your stories. And man, what what you know, what a great what a great life you've had in baseball. You know, from high school to to the to the all the levels of the minor leagues, major leagues. So it's it's been a you know a pleasure talking to you, and uh, and I look forward to hopefully seeing the Nationals and the Royals uh, in the World Series in 2016. That'd be nice. Right, I appreciate and uh, I, I like what you're doing here. I mean, it's. Uh... Yeah, educate the fans and stuff, and that's what it's all about, you know.